today we're going to be looking at John chapter 21, the first 14 verses. If you want, you can go ahead and, and begin to turn there. Yesterday, we paused to reflect on uh, a very tragic day in our nation's history that many of you remember very well. It's one of those seminal events that you will remember where you were and what you were doing. We'll remember the headlines. Some of us will remember actually seeing, watching TV as the anchors on the morning news were in shock, especially as the second plane flew into the, the World Trade Center tower and then the, the confusion as a plane flew into the Pentagon and, and not knowing what else was going on. And we'll remember the headlines. We'll remember the, uh, the figureheads. But there's so much that we won't remember. I purposely took some time this week to, to look for those names that we just wouldn't know. There may be someone here, because this name is out there, who knows the name Wellis Crowther. Does anybody know that name? Well, that's really what I thought. No, probably no one would know that name. And yet, Wellis Crowther was a 24-year-old trader who uh, was on, uh, I believe, the 78th floor of uh, one of the towers that was hit, the South Tower that was hit between floors 77 and 85 at 903. At 9.12, nine minutes after the plane hit, he called his mother and left a message and said, Mom, this is Wellis. I want you to know that I'm okay. It's the last thing that his mother heard from him. Not because Wellis didn't have opportunity to escape, but what he did was he made his way to the 78th floor sky lobby where he encountered a group of survivors, one young lady named Ling Young, who was very badly burned, who had made her way down from the 86th floor about 200 other people that were there, and he helped give them some direction to a, a stairwell that was actually working, put Miss Young on his back and carried her down 17 floors where he dropped her off. Then he headed back up the tower where he found another large group of people uh, that were gathered around a, uh, a bank of elevators seated waiting to see what was going to happen, see if the elevators would work. And he told them to get up, get on your feet, and he led them to another stairwell uh, that he knew was operational and helped lead them down the stairwell. One of those was another lady by the name of Judy Wine who had made her way down there from the 103rd floor already uh, with a broken arm. The last time that he was seen, he was headed back up the south, south tower at about 950 uh, with a group of New York firefighters to help assist further evacuations. His body was found six months later, March 2002. He was at a command post on one of the floors with several New York firefighters. Now, Wellis was a 24-year-old trader. He's directly credited with saving, that they know for sure, 18 lives. When his body was found, he was, there were no signs of burns. His body was found intact six months later. The authorities had speculated that he was helping in the rescue in some way. But his family had no other details other than the phone call to his mom nine minutes after the, the plane flew into the towers for, until he died. They, they knew nothing that happened in between until there was a New York Times article 
that was published about a firsthand account from Judy Wine, one of those who he helped save, about a man in a, in a red bandana who was helping save others. So his sister took his photographs and showed those photographs to those two people that had been named in the article, and they both positively identified him. And that's how they put the story together. Probably never know his name. Few people will even remember beyond today. I probably will because I spent some time researching it this week. But few of us will probably never remember who that guy was. Of course, his name is recorded at the 9-11 Memorial in New York. He's had some notoriety because he's become known as the Red Bandana Man. He'd gone to Boston College, and so Boston College has done some things to, to memorialize him. But by and large, he's one of the many heroes out there who just never gets named. You know, when I surrendered to the ministry, I remember very clearly uh, the struggles that I had. The Lord, I sensed the Lord's calling on my life as early as January when I was 15 years old until I, the Lord made it very clear when I was attending a youth evangelism conference when I was uh, 16, about six months later. And, and one of the things that I remember from that call, when I went forward and, and, and knew that I knew that God was calling me to the ministry and to drop all of my other ambitions and drop all of my other dreams, when we got back at church uh, that evening, there was a, an old lady who had always supported the youth ministry and was a friend of my mother, and, and she came to me and she said, we knew that God had called you to the ministry. You know, you know we who? Well, her and a, and a handful of the, the older senior adult women in the church since God's call on my life, and they'd been praying for months for me. Now, I have to confess, I was a 15, going on 16-year-old boy, and I don't even remember her name, let alone the name of the three or four of her friends who were praying for me. But I'd have to suggest that if anything good has come from my life that has helped you, maybe it's someone here that I shared the gospel with, maybe it's someone here that I pastored, there's at least four senior adult women from Leander First Baptist Church who have long since passed away who deserve part of the credit. Certainly the Lord deserves the credit. We know that. But you won't know their name. I can't even remember their name, but I remember some of their faces. My point is today that oftentimes it's those people who don't get the recognition who truly make the difference and do the work and the service of the kingdom. Now, with that in mind, read this text with me. We're going to have a different approach than you did in your growth group, but that's okay. The Scripture says, in John chapter 21, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That sea has all kinds of names. It's called the, the, the Lake of Gennesaret. It's called the Sea of Galilee. It's the same place. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two other disciples were there together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. <laughs> when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and he plunged into the sea. Seeing they weren't far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there. Was fish lying on, or with fish lying on it, and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, certainly, like in many of our stories uh, in Scripture, uh, Peter, especially in the New Testament, Peter gets the headlines here, right? Okay. The, the first question that we have out of this text is, why did they go fishing? Okay, so the disciples went fishing, and John names them. Well, he names five of them. <laughs> That's the first clue that we have here that there's a, another message in this text, because the Scripture says, Simon Peter... Thomas, called the twin. Interesting, we had just had a, a, a story about Thomas that John had written in, in chapter 20, where he makes sure that we know that it's, it's Thomas who's called the twin. Nathaniel, who's from Cana of Galilee. Zebedee's sons, which we know to be James and John, who were Peter's friends, who were also fishermen. And two other disciples who were together. So you have seven disciples there together, and Peter just says, I'm going fishing. Now, the picture you get is, is not necessarily that, that Peter was trying to get up a, a fishing expedition. Peter had just had it. Peter was going fishing. Now, there's a lot of questions, and we explored a lot of these in our growth groups this morning. Why did Peter go fishing? Is he going fishing out of disobedience to the Lord? Is he going fishing because, you know, the Lord had appeared on the first Sunday after he was resurrected. He'd appeared a week later. We don't know how later this is. And, and they're sitting around with nothing to do. One of the folks in our growth group said, you just can't have men sitting around. Once men start sitting around, they get themselves in trouble. Uh, so they got to have something to do. Uh, some scholars think, you know, at this point, they just didn't know. They didn't know when the next time was that they were going to see Jesus or there was going to be appearance of Christ or they were going to get any further instructions. So they went to do what they knew they could do. They were fishermen, so they went fishing. Might simply have been they were getting hungry. You got to make a living. You don't have Jesus there to feed you anymore, right? So let's go catch some fish. Uh, you know, not just getting hungry, but you got to pay for things. And so, uh, you know, here they go. They go all fishing. There's some indication that it, it maybe Jesus had planned it because in Mark 16, uh, at the at the tomb, Jesus says, "I'll go ahead of you and meet you in Galilee." 
So at least there's an indicator that, that maybe it wasn't out of disobedience. But there's another theory that runs alongside this because we know where they're going to meet the Holy Spirit. They're going to meet the Holy Spirit in the upper room in Jerusalem. Well, what the heck are they doing going to Galilee if they're supposed to be waiting in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come? In any case, to be honest, we just don't know for sure. It looks like Peter's just tired of sitting around, but he's going to go fishing. So he, he packs up his stuff. The other guys go, well, we're going with you. We ain't going to sit around here any longer. And so they pack up and go fishing on their own without any clear instructions from Christ. They go back to fishing. Well, what generally happens when we decide that we're just going to go off and do what we want to do without instructions from our Lord. We fail. And that's exactly what these guys did. These are professional fishermen that fished all night and caught nothing. Now, I would not be surprised if Kirby Skaggs called me and told me he'd fished all night and caught nothing. Right? But Kirby's fishing with a, with a pole and a few hooks. These guys are dragging nets between two boats, and they still can't catch any fish. I, I believe that that's the first miracle of this story. Professional fishermen fished all night and didn't catch any fish. Why? Because the Lord didn't let them catch any fish. And I absolutely love how the Lord approaches that. Because the second thing that I want you to see is even in our disobedience, even when we're somewhere where we're maybe not supposed to be, the Lord still finds us. Have you ever had the Lord show up to speak to you even when you were in your sin? Here the disciples are. My guess is, if I was to weigh it out, the evidence suggests to me they probably weren't supposed to be fishing. They're supposed to be waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on them in Jerusalem. And they've gone to Galilee fishing. Partly... I, I rest that on one other thing that we're going to see here in a moment. But Jesus meets us where we are. You know, I think sometimes Jesus just finds joy in meeting us where we are. It doesn't matter whether we're, we're exactly where we're supposed to be or not. He loves us and he comes to us. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5 8, that that's how God showed us his love, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son, not waiting for us to get cleaned up, but he sent his son to us while we were in our sin to meet us where we are, to bring us back. Jesus shows up in Galilee on the shore waiting for him. And I love what he says here because when daybreak came, Jesus was already on the shore. Now, get this picture. Jesus has already caught fish. Now, I don't know how he got fish. I don't know if he bought some in town. I don't know if he walked out on the water, reached down and picked up some fish, put it in the pan. Or as, as one of our, our, my group uh, members said today, maybe he just said, hey, y'all get, get in the pan. And they jumped in the pan. Now, Jesus can do whatever he wants to do. But whatever the case, Jesus is sitting around the, a, a fire that he's already got burned down to coals with a pan of fish and bread on it, waiting for the disciples when the sun comes up. And so at daybreak, Jesus looks out at these two boats about 100 yards offshore. And the, C, the CSB, I don't believe, gets this right, okay? The CSB says that Jesus called out to them, friends, 
I don't know, I'd like to talk to the translators there, why they choose the word friends to translate the word, because that same word in chapter 16 of John is translated children, as in newborn infants. That Greek word means children. It means newborn. In fact, it's, it's not even for like necessarily boys and girls. It's for children, little ones. And so Jesus looks out at his disciples, grown men, and he says, kids, you ain't caught nothing, had you? And they have to go, no. It's almost as though wherever they were and they're doing what they're not supposed to be doing, he drove up in, the, in his pickup truck, knocked on the door and said, what are you doing here? And they had no answer for him because he calls out to them, children, you don't have any fish, do you? And they had to admit, nope, we failed. We fished all night. We tried all night on our own. And we were completely unsuccessful. I believe that, that, that Jesus did things. He planned this exactly like this to make a point. They could come up with their own plan. They could try their own thing. And even when later on, when they got into ministry and they started going out and sharing the gospel and they started going on mission trips, they better stay connected to the Spirit because if they were going to try it on their own, they weren't going to catch anything. They were going to fail. And that's exactly what they did. They failed. But I want you to notice what Jesus did. Even in their failure, even when they were off where they weren't necessarily supposed to be, he met them where they were, and he provided for them. Do you know that? Even when you fail the Lord, he loves you. He'll meet you where you are, and he'll provide. Now, they could have chose not to believe, but Peter's heart was so lifted as soon as he figured out it was Jesus, he dove in the water and swam to shore. He, he wasn't waiting to deal with all of the, the fish and the nets and the boats and all of that. He just took off as fast as he could. Of course, part of that goes back to Peter just being pretty impetuous. But I want you to hear that. Even though they weren't necessarily where they were supposed to be, the Lord still provided. He, he passed around the fish and the bread. Reminds you of another time that Jesus provided with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. He is fully capable of taking care of everything that we can't. He's fully capable of taking up the slack of providing for what we can't. And he did it for his disciples here. Now, Peter gets the headlines. That's my next main point here. Peter almost always gets the headlines because that's Peter. He's the loudest. He's the leader. You have Peter, James, and John, who were the three who were most closely connected with Jesus, who were the inner circle throughout the, the Gospels. And they're all here, but James and John don't even get named. They get named as the sons of Zebedee. Well, at least we know who they are because we know who the sons of Zebedee are. But, but you have these five that are named, uh, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and the Zebedee sons. 
James and John. But Peter's the one who gets the headlines. He's the one that declares he's going fishing. He's the one that gets dives off in the water. He's the one that Jesus tells, after the other disciples have drug all the fish up, he's the one that, that Jesus tells to go get some of the fish. Peter's the one that Jesus is going to have interaction with next week as we read the, the next paragraph of this text. Peter seems to be at the center of the story. But I want you to notice something at least Peter did. Peter was called to be a leader, and Peter stepped up to lead. When he saw Jesus, even though he had not been fully restored yet, Peter went after it. That's why he's a leader. Because he, even though God, the, the Lord had already picked Peter out early on. He was part of that inner circle. Peter was the one who had confessed Christ as, as the Lord. Peter steps up and steps into his calling. And, and so there's two things that I just point out very quickly here. These are short, quick points. The first one is leaders must step up into their calling. If God has called you to lead, lead. I want to tell you, one of, one of the challenges uh, it, it, with that for me has been in the last 18 months with COVID. I, I am not a medical doctor. I'm not a professional. I'm, I'm called to make decisions for the flock of sheep that the Lord's given me that can't be made by anybody else. Certainly, I'm not on my own. I have deacons that are there to, to, to talk to, to bounce things off of. I've got other staff members that we pray with. We seek the Lord, but ultimately, the leader has to lead. And if the leader doesn't lead, you'll fail. And Peter steps up and goes all in. And, P, and, and second here, a leader should always run toward Jesus, or in Peter's case, swim toward Jesus. Jesus ought to be the center of our attention when we're leading. It ought to be all about Jesus, not about us. And that's exactly what Peter does here. He sees Jesus and he goes to Jesus. But what I really want to get to in this text is my third major point, and that's this. Look at who does all the work. It's not Peter doing the work. It's not James and John and Nathaniel doing the work. It's these two unnamed disciples. In fact, not only are they unnamed, they don't even have the best equipment. We'll point that out in a minute. So here, who is it that actually is, is making all of this happen? Who is it that's getting the 103 fish to shore? Now, the first argument can be made is this. Jesus is responsible for the catch of the fish, right? They would not have caught any fish had it not been for Jesus. It it doesn't matter how hard they tried, how many, who the experts were in this, who the big names were, who the little names were, there would not be a catch of fish outside of the miraculous work of Jesus. So we need to remember that. When we seek to serve the Lord in his kingdom, there will be no victory. There will be no success. There will be no lost saved. There will be no baptisms. There, there will be nothing but a dead church outside of the empowerment and the work of Jesus himself. The Lord, through the work of his Holy Spirit, is our only hope. And yet, it's not... In fact, it's often not the leaders, the ones whose names get called, the ones who are on the back of the bulletin that do so much of the work that causes the kingdom of God to, to operate. It's those unnamed disciples. Notice what happens here. When Simon Peter heard that, the, that it was the Lord, he didn't stick around to help. He went swimming. He's got to get to Jesus. And so 
he takes off, plunges into the water. They're not far off land, about 100 yards. And the scripture says here, and this is a key passage for our thoughts today, verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. Now, I want to point out something to you here about this boat. There's two different Greek words used for boat in this text, and I don't believe it's an accident. The the word that's used in verse 3 and verse 6 is a very typical word that's used for boat. It can be used for ship. It's generally used for a large boat, uh, a a ship that's out on the the ocean, out in the Mediterranean, or a large boat on, on the Sea of Galilee. It would be a big boat at least. It would be a boat. What distinguishes it is the word that's used in verse 8 is a completely different Greek word. That, the word that, that John uses there to describe the boat that the other disciples was in is always, always translated little boat. Do you, you get me? And so you have Peter and John and James, the sons of Zebedee, they're in the boat. The other disciples are in the little boat. And who is it that gets stuck with dragging 153 fish, a net full of 153 fish to shore? It's the other disciples in the little boat. They're the ones doing all of the work. They're the ones who are hauling in uh, the, the catch. They're the ones who truly are, 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 are responsible for fulfilling the work at this point. Peter is the headliner. James and John are part of the inner circle. At least Nathaniel gets his names called, and so does Thomas. But the other disciples in the little boat, we don't even know who they are. Maybe they were one of the other 11, right? We don't know for sure that they were even one of the original 12. They might have been, but we don't know. They're the other disciples in the little boat. But let me assure you, the Lord knows who they are. I firmly believe that there are many who are going to receive a lot of their credit on earth. And there are many that are going to receive a whole lot more credit when we step into the kingdom. Now, I, I don't necessarily believe in bigger mansions or more crowns or, you know, I, I don't know how all that's going to work out. That's God's business, and I just don't worry about it. But my guess would be that there's four senior adult women at Leander First Baptist Church who all deserve bigger mansions than I do because they were prayer warriors their whole life. They sacrificed and surrendered, and they did the work of the kingdom without having anybody know, without having to have their name up front, they just simply served Jesus without having to receive any earthly credit or have their name on anything. Some of us will get our names called and we'll get credit. Most of God's kingdom servants won't. Some of us are given big venues to do the work God's called us to with with great tools. Some of us are given smaller venues with lesser equipment. 
God's expectation is simply that we're obedient to serve him where we are. Some of us will serve all of our lives, serve the Lord faithfully, sharing the gospel without any public recognition. Others will have their names on billboards. Once we step out of this life into the next, none of that matters. What matters is what we did with what we were given. Have I been obedient to do what the Lord's called me to do with the tools, the equipment, the boat (laughs) that he gave me? Whether I ever get credit or not, am I obedient to do what the Lord's called me to do? I pray that that encourages you. It has me. I'll confess there's times in my life where I thought that God should lead me to a bigger church. And then when I had opportunities, I turned them down because I knew that that's not where God was leading me. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's just the, our human nature is to want to get the credit, to have the bigger house, the bigger boat, the, the, the bigger venue, the better paying job. That, that's human nature. But what we need to do is learn to be content as these guys were, as unnamed disciples in the little boat simply doing the Lord's work. Now, I want you to notice something here because this gets to to where we're going next. Once they came and sat around the charcoal fire, they all got taken care of by Jesus. Peter didn't get more fish than the guys in the little boat. John wasn't offered more bread. The guys in the little boat weren't offered more. They just simply... Scripture tells us that they came and they gathered around. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. They really didn't even talk about it. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew who he was. Jesus took the bread and he gave it to him, to them, and he did the same with the fish. One of these days, every one of the disciples of Christ, every one of us, whether we were in a little boat or a big boat, Whether we were named or unnamed, every one of us is going to be seated around God's banquet table. And every one of us is going to to receive that blessing from God of eternal life. He's going to feed us. He's going to to provide for us. He's going to wipe away our tears. He is going to offer us something that we cannot catch on our own, that we could not gain on our own. He's going to do something for us that we can't do. We're going to be seated around him in his eternal home. And he's going to provide for us big names, little names, people that were in big churches, little churches, people that that, that did a lot, people that did a little, all who are called his children. We made a big deal out of this a few weeks ago. There came a point after Jesus was resurrected, he no longer called and this, this is one of the reasons I have issue with this translation. He no longer referred to his disciples as friends. At the res- after he was resurrected, he called them brothers. He used family language. Here he calls them his children. <laughs> now, it's a little derision in that, it seems. Like, kids, what are you doing out here fishing? You know you ain't supposed to be here. But he calls them his kids. 
every single one of us who has professed faith in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, every single one is going to be seated at the same level, seated around the throne room of God. We're going to be provided for and cared for by the King of kings and Lord of lords, just like a daddy would his kids. He's going to take care of us. And it doesn't matter how big a boat you were in or how far your influence reached on this earth. What's going to matter is are you his kid? Are you one of his? Because if you're one of his, he's going to provide for you. That's the most important question that we end with today. Not how big your boat is. Not how much recognition, recognition you get or how famous your name is. The question that we end with today this is the only one that matters when it comes to eternity, is do you belong to Jesus? Are you one of his kids? You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.